Good morning. It feels weird just to launch into the scripture reading when I haven't greeted you this morning yet. Hi. This morning, I'm sorry to take you out of 2 Corinthians. We're, we're parachuting, as Carl said, into Ephesians once again. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago for my installation service, we also parachuted into Ephesians for that service as well. Uh, Pastor Vicki Koch from Waterloo CRC preached on the bit of scripture that comes right before chapter four, which is the prayer for the Ephesians. And I thought to kind of keep continuity with that service for my first sermon, why don't we just keep on going? And amazingly enough, verses, or chapter four, where we'll be reading this morning, verses one through 16, is a powerful passage. More than enough for one sermon. And I kept it short, I promise. And it's all about how we're formed together who we are, who we are in God and who we are for each other. So with that in mind, let's turn to Ephesians chapter four. We're gonna be reading from verses one through 16. Listen then for the word of God. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you, live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. For there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says that when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. And and Paul has this parenthetical where he kind of goes off for a second. And, And what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? For he who ascended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. He just can't help himself. He just fills on up. And so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then, then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and the craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. And from him, the whole body, joined, held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word of the Lord. You can do it, can you repeat back to me? Thanks be to God. Thank you. Have you ever wondered or asked yourself 
like seriously why we do this? Why we gather on Sunday mornings like this? Has it ever struck you as just a little odd? Or have you allowed it to strike you as a little odd? My, my neighbors think so. <laughs> because Brian and I get up early on Sunday morning, like all of you, and we're out the door early on the last day of a beautiful weekend. And, and while our neighbors, we, we head outside, and our neighbors on one side of us are, are typically out in the front porch already, in their pajamas, sipping a steaming mug of coffee, which looks really good, and enjoying the morning, watching the neighborhood wake up, taking it leisurely, like normal people. And then on the other side of us, our, the other neighbors are already out as well, except they're not front porch people, they're front yard people, and they're already gardening, they're trimming the hedges, they're you know, pulling up weeds, they're caretaking their lawn. They're not quite normal people. <laughs> and we say good morning, you know, Brian and I say good morning, we're dressed up, we got our Bibles, often our sermons in hand, and, and we wave goodbye, say a little hello, and we hop in our car. We leave our front porch, we leave our front yard, not that we have a difficulty with that piece. And we drive to a building full of friends, full of strangers, acquaintances, and we get together to sing, to listen to someone talk from an ancient text a few centuries old. And we give money, and after about an hour and a bit, if, you know, the service is on time, we have a little bit of coffee, except today, no coffee, and then we go home. Church can be a little bit odd, if we're honest. And others consider this whole church thing, what we do, who we are, is not only odd, but irrelevant, and some harmful. Maybe you have friends like that, or if you're like me, you have family members. The church don't need it. And you just have to read blogs or memoirs of, of, of so-called post-church Christians to realize that this is not an uncommon perspective on what we do and who we are. You realize that many have left faith, walked away from it, not necessarily because they have a problem with the resurrection or the virgin birth is a particularly difficult doctrine or even Jesus himself, but because of the church. Because the church can be petty, the church can be destructive, and the church can be harmful. Now these folks who've walked away, if they haven't walked completely away from faith, they often opt to do faith on their own. Because why not? I don't need the infighting, I don't need the politics, I don't need the difficult personalities, I don't need the people that I don't particularly like or are difficult to get along with. I don't need them, just Jesus and me. Maybe the front porch on Sunday mornings like all those other normal people. A cup of coffee, they add a devotional to the picture to make it a bit better. And then they kind of wave at those people getting in their cars to go to church. And they look around and they say, isn't this so much better? And here's where I think Paul steps in to help us out a little bit. You may have noticed, as you're going through the Second Corinthians um, series, that when Paul writes to the church, it's often because the church is doing something wrong. <laughs> 
I mean, Paul rarely writes because he's overjoyed and happy. He usually writes because something is wrong with the church, and in the early church, like now, there's often something very wrong. And so whether it's infighting or jockeying for power, whether it's difficult personalities, the clashing, false teachings being spread, dangerous living or embracing of idols, or in the case of the church to Corinth, all of the above. <laughs> John, you're John, the preacher who's preaching the second Corinthians, he's like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> second Corinthians isn't the exception to this. Just about all of Paul's letters are addressing problems in congregations. He's like an exasperated parent surrounded by very misbehaving toddlers and you just can't take it anymore. But even a quick read of the letters in the New Testament that Paul writes shows that the early church, the church has never been easy. The church has never been perfect. The church has never been tidy. The church has never been full of solely nice people. And that seems to give support to our, our, our post-church Christian friend over here who's saying, well, see, <laughs> it's always been like this. It's broken, so why keep doing it? Why not try something else? But Ephesians, Ephesians is a letter that breaks that mold. It's the exception. There's no significant problem to address that we can really discern. It just gives Paul a chance to step back and basically kind of give us a church 101. Give us the big picture of what church is, who we are as a church, who we're called to be as a church. And in Paul in Ephesians, he, he picks up the opportunity and, and he gives us this new lens through which to see the church, through which to understand the church. And after three chapters, if you've read the first three chapters of Ephesians or remember anything, like, it's big, it's cosmic. It's talking about Jesus reconciling all things to himself in heaven and on earth. It's, it's God's rescue plan for all of humanity through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like, it is big and it is soaring. And you almost kind of have to just take a pause and breathe and then launch back into it in order to finish. It's overwhelming, it's beautiful, it's epic. And, and Paul, eventually, he takes a breath. And, and towards the end of chapter three, so before we get to, to our passage this morning, Paul actually gives us a snippet, a, a glimpse of the church's role in that big cosmic picture. And this is what he says. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip to chapter three, and it's verses 10 and 11. And here's what Paul writes about, about the church in that big picture. God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to the eternal purpose that God accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Big sentence, important piece, through the church. Through the church, and that's a mission statement. You know, because being the church is just as simple as being the way through which God expresses his manifold wisdom to all rulers and principalities in the heavenly realms, right? That's totally what we're doing here this morning. That's totally what we think about when we're doing church. It, you might, at this point, not think that the church is just a little odd, if you're honest, but at this point, with Paul's mission statement for the church, you might think it's absolutely impossible. Us? The church? The manifold wisdom of God through all ages? 
fulfilling his eternal purpose? Yeah, that's our mission statement. We, we can do that. But thankfully, Paul doesn't leave us there. He, he brings that cosmic picture down to earth for us. And it's here in chapter four where he, he, he pivots. So he, he kind of stops painting that large picture and he turns to us. He turns to the congregation in Ephesus, he turns to this congregation here in Kitchener, Ontario, and he starts walking us through our role, our purpose in this large picture. That's why he starts, as a prisoner for the Lord then, then therefore, all of that that's come before, because of that, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Okay, how do we live out that calling? It's a big calling, so the answer should be pretty big, how we live it out, so big church, big faith, big programs, we gotta go big, right? Manifold wisdom of God from all eternal purpose, everything. We gotta go big. Paul doesn't go there. Be completely humble. Be gentle. Be patient. Bear with one another in love and do everything you can to maintain the unity of the Spirit through a bond of peace. Paul does not challenge us to go big. Paul challenges us to go small. And nothing here that he says actually focuses on the institution of the church, the power of the church, the prestige of the church. It's all deeply relational stuff. Be humble, be gentle. That's stuff you do with other people. That's where the challenge comes in. You can be humble and gentle with yourself, but it's when other people come into the picture, that's when it gets hard. That's when you need to be told to be humble, be gentle, bear with one another in love. So where he brings us is where it's all about who we are together in the body of Christ, in the church, as followers of Jesus. And this makes sense when we look at Paul's dominant metaphor, that is the body of Christ, right? Many parts knit, joined together through one spirit, one hope, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is in all and through all, into one body. Paul has seven of these one statements. Seven, which is a number of perfection, which is really beautiful. And can I say one moment? Seven, number of perfection. Brian and I have been married for seven years today. So I feel like seven is the number of perfection for marriage. Yay! Actually, I have no idea where he's sitting. There you go. Hi, there he is. Sorry, seven just brought that to mind. I had to share. So Paul uses seven, and we're supposed to think number of perfection, seven. And is it, with, as it says, if with each statement, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one hope, that he's actually drawing lines between us strengthening them until there's those seven threads that, that weave through all of us, joining us together. We're bound together by seven threads, the number of perfection. We're united by one hope, by one Lord, by one faith, by one baptism, by one spirit, by one God and Father into one body. There's, there's some thought that that piece, that those couple verses, they, they get, they're quite beautiful, right? They sound deeply liturgical. 
And, and there's some thought that Paul is actually drawing on an early baptismal liturgy piece from the early church, something that every baptized person would have had said to them at their baptism, what they were baptized into, one body, one spirit, one faith. In our baptism, it, it makes sense, right? Because our baptism begins this journey together. When God claims us as his own child, marks us with water as a sign of this belonging, it doesn't matter, matter, matter whether we are a three-week-old screaming infant, because usually they scream, or a nervous teen or an aging 86-year-old. When we are marked by that water, we're not baptized into some personal relationship with Jesus, where it's just me and him. We, we are baptized into God's community, into a family of God, into the body of Christ. We don't enter into this life of faith alone at baptism because we are parts of a far greater whole beyond just us. Now in two weeks, right, August 30th, we're gonna be witnessing the baptisms of little Noah and little Cadence. And in that service, we will be asked to stand and make a vow as a congregation to care for and pray for these new little brothers and sisters in our community who are now parts of our body. And the vow we take commits us to being gentle with them, humble with them, bearing in love these two little additions to who we are together. And we don't just stop there. Paul reminds us that each of us, as parts of the body, are given gifts for the building up of the body. Very much what Heidelberg Catechism has already said, that it's our duty as followers of Jesus, as parts of the body, to use our gifts in service of others because those gifts are not ours. The gifts that we have, the gifts we've been given, we receive from Christ for the upbuilding of this community, of his church. That's why he says, but to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service. No one is exempt from this gift-giving. No one gets a pass. No one gets to be hands-off. We're all involved by nature of being parts of the whole. And, and I don't want you to be misled by Paul's list here. It's not exhaustive by any means. It's not intended to be exhaustive. It's, a, it's, a, it's just a short list. And, and we're not just talking here about ordained offices or official offices. Because in my, in my own few weeks here at Community CRC, I have been blessed by and experienced some of the wonderful gifts that you all have. I've witnessed the gifts of cautious wisdom and discernment at a council meeting. I've witnessed the gifts of patience and teaching by the volunteers at VBS. Did, did I mention the gift of patience that I witnessed? At the, yeah, yeah, I did. And I've witnessed and been blessed by the gifts of hospitality, by, by the gift of being attentive and present to another person as a new sister and pastor in your midst. I've been blessed by that, by your gifts, by your attention, by your notes, your encouragement, your hugs. Hospitality is a strong gift here, P.S. And you have all been here far longer than I have. 
and you may know each other far better. And you know that you've been blessed by the gifts of the people here. And you have blessed them. And part of my joy and my calling as a pastor here will be to learn your gifts, to get to know you, and to help you develop those for the upbuilding of the faith of this community. You don't get off the hook because you hired someone. But according to Paul, it's not, we don't just get left there. Here's your gifts, go use them. Serving one another with our gifts is not just about to make us feel better in the congregation. We're a vibrant part, they need us, yay. And it's not just about having to fulfill a checklist once we've made a vow at baptism of things to do to care for these little ones. Because Paul says that the outcome of all of this, the cultivating of, of our gifts, the serving of others, the practicing patience, being gentle, bearing with one another in love, the practice of all of these things has an outcome, a goal, an end result. It bears fruit. And that's where ultimately we're headed. The fruit of all of this is that we grow up. Paul follows this, this big gift-giving section in, in this part of Ephesians with a very significant so that. So it's purpose, it's meaning, it's, it's what all of this come before has, is meaning, moving towards, so that. So Paul says, all of this, your gifts, your practicing patience, your bearing with one another, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So that we grow up. As we serve the body, growing into our gifts, and our ability to be patient, gentle, humble, loving, we grow up. We mature. And we stop being babies. And we grow up as adults in the faith. And that has nothing to do with age. Now that can all start sounding a little churchy, right? It can all kind of start sounding a little pious. We've heard that, yep, gifts, yep, body of Christ, yep. And so I want to pop that bubble just a little bit. And I want to give, give an example of what it looks like to actually grow up, partially. And the only person I feel comfortable doing that about is me, um, since I don't know you all as well and I can't share personal stories yet. So I'll share my own. As some of you know, um, before coming here, before being called here, uh, I worked at World Renew in Burlington, still living in Kitchener, which meant I had a commute of about an hour each way if traffic was good and the 401 cooperated, which was not every day, I can tell you. And, and there may be some crazy people out there who actually love commuting. I am not one of you at all. There was, some, there was some times where I could, you know, have the radio on to CBC, sipping my coffee, and have a good commute. Things would flow, not too stressful. But when things went wrong is when I could be the most unchristlike person possible. So this is going to be confession time for your newest member of the ministry staff. I'm going to be honest and just a tad, a tad vulnerable. 
because commuting would bring out the Hulk in me. And it still does, so thankfully it's only 15 minutes from here to my home right now. Because there were some commutes where my blood would boil, where my knuckles would go white on the steering wheel, where my face is beat red, and everyone around me are idiots. <laughs> Except me. And this went on for a little while, guys. And I thought of this as something to endure, to complain about, um, to commiserate with other commuters, until one particular confession and assurance, um, morning worship service at church. And I don't remember what the prayer of confession was, what the spoken prayer was, but in the silence afterwards, all the Spirit had to do was prompt an image of my previous week's commute. My red face, my anger, my impatience, the Hulk in not the funny sense, but the mean one, the vicious one. And not only that, not only me in my car being angry and impatient and letting that build, but then not leaving it in the car when I got home. Taking all that anger and impatience right into my home and making Brian deal with it. And not being kind to him, not caring for him, but being so tense and angry from how I let that build up on my commute. Okay, spirit, what do I do with that? That's an ugly piece of me. So I committed to do better, and that wasn't just about giving myself a double shot of espresso in my coffee and putting a smile on and faking it. It was how do I actually learn from this? How do I be better in this moment? And so the Spirit basically said, well, you got two hours, more if you need it, we'll give it to you, of practicing patience. So I spent at minimum two hours and more if I needed it. That's how I started phrasing it, of practicing patience. And, and that time was not easy, so I had about a year. So this was about a year of God convicting me before coming here, so a year of commuting. And it was a process full of prayer, full of some high moments, but also full of failure, and still full of anger, and still full of impatience. But I spent a year practicing. And I can't tell you that I'm an incredibly more patient person now, I can't tell you that when I get in the 401 to go to Toronto or something like that, that I am a much happier, better person. I can't. But I can tell you that I am more gentle and humble with others and their impatience. By sitting in mine, knowing my own red-faced ugliness, I know how hard it is to overcome. And I can bear with one another, with others in love, as they have the same struggle as I do. Now, the physical, mental, and emotional act of growing up is messy. The actual one, where I actually grow up from physical infants to physical adults, is messy and linear. Anybody with teenagers can say, <laughs> yeah. It's not a linear trajectory. It is up and down. It is full of false starts and new beginnings. It is full of failure, and it is full of hope, and it is full of small successes. And we just keep traveling on it. We keep growing up. 
And that's the same with the spiritual life. It's the same with spiritually growing up. There's no kind of like perfect trajectory from baptism to profession of faith and we plateau because we've reached it. That, that narrative doesn't exist, folks. From baptism onward unto death, we have this continual challenge to live a life worthy of our calling to grow up in him. And that is hard and difficult and messy and as real as just purely trying to not be angry on a commute to work. It is as mundane as that. But the power of Paul's message here in Ephesians is the assurance that in the midst of a messy and a difficult journey of growing up, that we're not alone, that we are parts of a whole, and the very basic fact is we can't do it alone. So yes, the church can be messy and difficult because it is full of real people who leave, live messy and difficult lives. You can't avoid it, that's the reality. And yes, the church is odd because it's full of folks trying to live according to the way of Jesus and hopefully if we're doing it right, that will be odd to the rest of the world. But when we see the church through the lens that Ephesians gives us, we can see something else. We can see more than that. Do you you remember that crazy sounding mission statement that Paul gives us in chapter three, verses 10 and 11? That it's God's intent through the church to make manifest the manifold wisdom of God? That one? As I was reading and praying through Ephesians 4 and, and holding that image of the church, of God's intent for the church to make manifest the wisdom of God in the world, my mind kept coming back, it kept being drawn back to the images and the stories that came out after the shooting in Charleston, North Carolina, uh, a couple months ago in June. And, and, and the Charleston shooting was where a young man attended a Wednesday night Bible study. Except instead of a Bible, he had a gun loaded in his pocket. And he sat and he listened to a small group of Christians read Jesus' words in Matthew. And and the group there, the Bible study, welcomed him in. Drew a seat for him. Had him join them. Then he opened fire, and he shot and killed nine of those Christians attending that Wednesday night Bible study. Now, shootings like these are becoming far too common for our neighbors in the South. But what was uncommon was the stories and the images that came out afterward. They were rare and beautiful and heart-wrenching. There was a video of, of the victims, of the, of the families of the victims, and they were given the opportunity after Dylan, the one who pulled the trigger, the, the murderer, after he was arrested, they were given the opportunity to speak directly to him, to address him. And what could have been a moment filled with hate and anger and vengeance, And none of us would have faulted any of the families for feeling that way or voicing that. None of us. Instead, it turned into a moment of grace and forgiveness. As families of those murdered met death with the offer of life. 
There was one woman whose mother Dylan had killed, and she spoke to Dylan and told him that you took something very precious away from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never get to hold her again, but I forgive you. I forgive you. And I actually remember watching the coverage of that, and at that moment, shortly after, other families also raised and offered forgiveness to this murderer of their loved ones. The news coverage cut back to a panel of journalists, and they were speechless. How they, were trying to, they were trying to find some sense, some meaning in what they had just seen, this act of grace, this act of faith, this offer of forgiveness. They had no meaning-making context for what those families just did. We do. Because through the Spirit, Jesus is building his church, his body, to live in a manner worthy of his calling. Because Jesus is building his church so that the world can not only see the manifold wisdom of God, but the world can experience the love of God, the mercy of God, and the forgiveness of God. And this is not by our own power, but the Spirit working in us. Because those brothers and sisters in Christ who stood before Dylan, the one who took their family members from them, they weren't doing this because they're super Christians, because somehow they're on a different plateau than us. They could stand there and offer life in the face of death because they had been formed and shaped by the Spirit in them through countless small acts of forgiveness, of humility, of gentleness, of bearing with one another in love. And the Spirit could pull out in that moment an offer of God's forgiveness. So when we practice patience instead of impatience, the Spirit is at work in us. When we quiet our prideful impulses and try to cultivate humility, the Spirit is at work in us. And when we offer forgiveness in small and in big ways, the Spirit is at work in us. And it is through this imperfect and odd gathering of God's people, here and across the world and across time, the Spirit is at work forming us, shaping us into the likeness of the Son. All the parts of the whole, as we grow and mature into our calling, in this life of faith. And I think Paul's words are the best words to end on. Paul leaves us in verse 16. From Christ the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work all of us, parts of the whole. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. Mold us 
make us, form us into the likeness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask that you show us in the small ways as well as the big how we can better follow our Savior and remind us that it is Jesus who calls us, the Spirit who enables us, and that we are not alone, but we are parts of the whole. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus, our brother, our savior, our friend. Amen.